All right, so we're about to have a new Congress in Washington, and we, I think, all have a lot of questions on how this Congress is going to function. Is it going to function pretty much like the last Congress? Or maybe this is the Congress in which we finally see some reforms. Uh, I'm not holding my breath. Uh, maybe this is a Congress in which factions start to emerge and challenge the dominant centralized party hierarchy. Not holding my breath there either, but these are interesting questions and we're going to dive into them on another episode of Politics in Question. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And today we have a special guest, Ruth Block Rubin, joining us. She's a assistant professor uh, of political science at the University of Chicago, and she is the author of the uh, terrific uh, book "Building the Block: Intraparty Organization in the U.S. Congress." And she is also a contributor to the new edited volume "Congress Overwhelm: The Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform." Out this month, uh, out this uh, I guess we're recording in December, so out this month from the University of Chicago Press, uh, which I co-edited along with Kevin Kosar and Tim Lapira, and she has this, this terrific chapter on the history of reform in Congress. So uh, I thought we'd uh, talk to Ruth about po- prospects for reform and sort of factions in Congress and see where the conversation goes. So welcome to the pod, Ruth. Thanks so much for having me, you all. All right, so let's start with reform because, you know, that is a, a, a common interest of ours, uh, Prospects for Reform. And you wrote this really wonderful chapter in the book, if, if nothing else, buy the book for Ruth's chapter, um, which is this, this really, you know, thoughtfully written history of uh, various episodes of congressional reform, uh, internal congressional reform, sort of why they happen, you know, what was the consequence, and also a little bit about what it what it might take for Congress to uh, have another one of these episodes of reform. So can you give us kind of the, the brief history of congressional reform and you know how, how we should think about the prospects for congressional reform in the in the years to come? Sure. Well, I think the first thing that's really important to recognize is just that reform is really difficult, especially formal kinds of reforms. And I realize this is a little bit discursive, but I think here it's helpful. Uh, Political scientists often study institutional changes that happen by accident or sort of over time, slowly institutions alter the way they operate. Uh, But here what we're really talking about are sort of deliberate efforts to change how Congress operates through statute. So pieces of legislation like the Legislative Reorganization Act. And there's sort of three periods where there's a lot of frenzy to change how Congress operates in these sort of formal ways. There are a period of reforms in the 1940s, uh, reforms in the 1970s, and reforms in the 1990s. The reforms in the 1990s didn't really get off the ground, uh, but we'll talk about them anyway. Uh, So in the 1940s, the real uh, sort of impetus for reform is that the executive branch is accumulating a lot of capacity. Uh, the agencies under the New Deal and as a result in part of World War II are expanding. The president has far more resources to hand and Congress is having a really difficult time keeping up. 
And so lawmakers get together uh, a bipartisan joint committee, decide that, you know, the people's branch, the first branch needs to buck up and uh, sort of increase its capacity. And that's what they do. They implement a variety of reforms to make Congress more efficient. And the sort of chief thing that happens is that they consolidate a lot of committees. Uh, At the time, uh, there were a ton of standing committees in both the Senate and the House. And so that meant that uh, there are a lot of inefficiencies and uh, for a bill to wend its way through either chamber, uh, there were fights over jurisdiction and so forth. And so by consolidating committees, you would essentially ensure that their uh, sort of Congress's process is more streamlined and they're better able to engage in the kind of oversight of executive agencies that uh, is suddenly now necessary. Um, the problem or unintended consequence of those reforms in the 1940s is that there's a sudden uh, boom in subcommittees, uh, which was not what um, folks had intended because it essentially replaced the multiple standing committees with many complex subcommittees. It also, one of the things the Reorganization Act in the 40s did was uh, give members of committees and particularly leaders of committees more staff commensurate with seniority, which suddenly meant that seniority was far more valuable to members. Uh, and so by the 1970s, you have a lot of subcommittees and you have a fairly entrenched seniority system. And so this is the time where uh, liberal Democrats, along with some Republicans, um, try and push back against the system uh, and basically try and devolve power away from senior members on committees to subcommittees, so sort of decentralized power, uh, particularly in the House. Uh, by the 1990s, this decentralization has created a lot of inefficiencies and uh, sort of mired Congress in gridlock. And so there's an effort to centralize or re-centralize power, but rather than re-centralizing that power back through the committee system, the aim was to re-centralize power in the hands of party leaders. So there's a centralization of authority in majority party leaders, uh, as well as in minority party leaders. A lot of these reforms were initially proposed by a joint committee, but actually were not successfully passed, but were taken up by Gingrich uh, and added to the contract with America and sort of implemented in that way. Um, So that's sort of the large scale major changes that have happened since. And now we're facing, Lee, as you alluded to, uh, to a Congress and particularly a House that's contemplating what to do now. Uh, Party leaders have a lot of power, but we still can't seem to get a lot done. Uh, Francis Lee and Jim Curry, I think, have pointed to one of the key problems being that there's a lot of intra-party heterogeneity. Uh, So despite the fact that party leaders are very powerful and legislative majorities would seem to be able to have their way on the floor, they still don't seem capable of doing so. And I think that's where factions come in. Julia? Yeah, so I have a couple of I have a couple questions here that build on. I guess I should say at the outset, I am just such a huge fan of of your work and your book Building the Block was one of the most interesting things I've I've read about Congress and I've thought a lot about it and I'm wondering, you know, one of the insights that that you have there is kind of about how intra-party organizations in um in Congress are like the Blue Dog Democrats for for example, um have this capacity, at least some of the time, to kind of, if I understand correctly, redistribute the power within Congress and kind of to harness the collective power of factions and thus have some kind of impact. And I'm wondering if that's, you know, if you see potential for redistributing the kind of 
organization of, of power within Congress in a way that favors reform? Or maybe the simpler version of that is like, who are the constituencies for reform within Congress and how might they develop um, some capacity to influence the, the rest of the membership or the leaders or whoever they need to, to influence, if that makes any sense? Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of things at play here. So one, when we look historically, we see that successful reform effort, efforts are typically bipartisan. So one story you could tell is what you want to do are empower organizations that routinely work across the party aisle. Um, so this might be either empowering explicitly bipartisan groups like the uh, Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus, uh, but what might sort of, I think, also work reasonably well would be to consider uh, lending uh, aid to groups like the Blue Dog Coalition, the New Democrat Coalition, uh, the sort of somewhat disorganized Tuesday group uh, within the Republican Party. Uh, these are members who I think typically see that there's some common cause to be made with folks across the aisle. Uh, and to the extent that whatever reforms Congress uh, manages to get through are likely to be fairly moderate, I think looking there makes a lot of sense. It is, if you think about constituencies interested in reform, I do think there is perhaps some, perhaps counterintuitively, some shared interest between progressive Democrats and very conservative Republicans. Um, Mark Meadows uh, has been friendly with members or leaders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, perhaps uh, Trolley, I don't know. I wouldn't presume to know, but um, sort of getting a sense of both groups being interested in disrupting how things operate within their parties. It's perhaps conceivable that uh, those organizations could work together on a narrow set of issues that would be intended to devolve power away from party leaders. Uh, I'm not holding my breath for that kind of collaboration, but I suppose in theory it's possible. So I'm really excited to have this conversation today, and I'm, I'm a big fan of your book. And as someone who used to run at the staff level, one of these intra-party caucuses uh, on Capitol Hill in the Senate, it's something that I've, I think has definitely been understudied in the literature and, and by scholars. And the question I have, and, and just to your last point, I, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, usually, and I, you know, for our listeners, I ran the Senate Steering Committee, which is the, uh, I guess, the sister organization of the RSC or the Freedom Caucus and um, in the Senate. And... Uh, it, I spent most of my time, you know, obviously working with conservatives, but a lot of my time working with with uh, liberals and progressives. And it seems to me that there is a there is a mutual interest there in trying to free up the Senate floor in this case for action and to free up the Senate floor for um, members to do things that bring the outside into the inside and of the chamber, because that's how you win. And you said, I mean, reforming uh, things is hard. Changing organizations from the inside is especially hard. And usually conservatives and, and progressives, the only opportunity they have to win those debates is to basically play an outside game, because after all, that's why they're outliers. When everybody disagrees with you on the inside, you have to go outside. And to go outside, you need um, a kind of a place to do things on the Senate floor, you need to be able to engage in certain actions and have votes on, on things and let the chips fall where they may. But I have a, a question for you in terms of reform, you know, as we get into the, the um, intra-party caucuses as well. But 
in thinking about reforms and thinking about where we go from here, it seems to me that intraparty caucuses, they form because they help their members capture right gains from their cooperating with one another. And so they can then achieve their goals, but they can do it in a way that the formal party organizations are not doing, right? So the Freedom Caucus forms because it the Republican Party and incidentally the RSC aren't giving its members what they need. The, the Democratic Study Group, and we'll get into this, I suppose, um, for similar reasons. So in, in a way, there it's a response to failures of the party system. But this is what I, what I'm what I'm struggling with right now in this moment is to what extent then if the, if it's a response to the failures of a party system, to what extent are these caucuses zero sum? To what extent is their competition with that party system um, zero sum in those party organizations, or are they just pressure valves? And if they're pressure valves, are they really the vehicle? Or if they operate as pressure valves, are they the vehicle for reform? in this moment that that they have been in the past. Does that make sense? I'm kind of, I'm all over the place here, but I'm trying to think about how to articulate this question in the best possible way. Yeah, so I think um, this is something I've thought, not surprisingly, a lot about. Um, and I think probably, well, the first thing I'd note is uh, I don't disagree that the prevalence and persistence of these organizations signals that like something is wrong with how the parties are operating. But I guess I'm more sanguine that this is just an inevitable result of having a two-party system in a country as diverse and heterogeneous as ours. And so there's just no possible way for one party to accommodate everybody or the diverse set of coalition constituents within it. And so I think this kind of organization is in some ways inevitably going to crop up, uh, in part because there are going to be times where one faction or group within a party is just not getting what it wants from the system. And I would be, I wouldn't say that the party is failing because I think it assumes that you can please everybody all the time, which I don't think is possible. So then the question is, you know, are these organizations pressure valves, as you say, which I take to mean an opportunity to blow off steam, but not necessarily proposably directed to change the status quo per se. Um, or are they really vehicles to alter their environment so that they can essentially render themselves unnecessary and dissipate? Um, and I think different organizations function differently. Um, for some groups, I do think, and I think this is where uh, I think folks mistakenly put the Freedom Caucus, which is it's a pressure valve. It's an opportunity to blow off steam and to signal to voters that you're a different kind of Republican. I take Freedom Caucus members at their word that they actually care about policy. And so this is not just about signaling to voters that you're a certain kind of conservative, but rather that you have a vision for what you want the Republican Party to become and what you want Congress to do or not do. Um, likewise, I think the same would be said about progressives or um, moderate Democrats. I don't think these are simply opportunities to signal certain kind of ideological character type to voters. I think they actually want to get stuff done in Congress. And so then the question is, are these good vehicles for reform? I think on the one hand, um, the fact that they're policy driven suggests that legislative reform, which is often an impetus or sort of something that is uh, pursued in the hopes of then achieving policy gains would mean that they could be good ones. Um, but I do think one of the challenges, and I think others have written about this far more persuasively than I, uh, 
institutional reform is difficult to sell to people because it's hard to predict who's going to win out. Um, it's hard to know for sure, you know, whether you're really going to benefit. It's also really challenging to understand. It's really intricate. And to have the kind of uh, parliamentary knowledge and know how to be able to assess whether different reform proposals are good ideas means you have to have a certain kind of organization, one that's not unlike um, the Democratic Study Group in its heyday, which invested a lot in a research staff for its members' use, which meant I think that you would get far more detailed, um, fact-driven or problem-driven policy as opposed to sort of symbolic uh, resolutions or symbolic votes of the kind that we maybe see more commonly in Congress as a rule today. So I, I, I want to keep on this theme of of different reform coalitions because I think it's super interesting. And you know, it seems like you know, there we've been talking a lot about the potential for some sort of you know, cross-partisan reform coalition that brings together sort of dissenting groups on the far right and dissenting groups on the far left. But you know, it seems to me that one of the challenges there, Ruth, as you point out, is that uh, while they both might agree that they want something that empowers uh, their group over what they see as, a, as an overly compromising leadership, uh, they have very different visions of, of policy and ultimately process is uh, a vehicle to policy. And, and I, I suspect that that coalition is not really very stable as a reform coalition. Then there's a, a second type of, of coalitional reform strategy, which might be you know, something that I think is a little bit more in the news these days, the, the problem solvers and there are various calls for some sort of like fulcrum group of, of centrist senators to kind of play uh, deal maker uh, and kind of stick together. And I, I know you've written a bit about the challenges of uh, centrist coalitions in uh, in your, your building the block book. And then there's another potential reform coalition, which uh, we, we didn't talk about the overthrow of Speaker Cannon in 1911, but in which the, the kind of a progressive reform coalition, which I think was largely orthogonal to the two parties uh, in a way that that just brought in a new, an entirely new dimension. Um, and then maybe there's another potential reform coalition, which is like a supermajority reform coalition, which like maybe is kind of what what was what was driving the reforms in the 70s, in which like the Democrats had a pretty strong supermajority, but a lot of folks in the Democratic caucus felt like they were being held hostage by a small number of very conservative committee chairs. And you know, maybe it's the case that you could build a supermajority reform coalition if you know one you know one a minority seems to be holding the entire congress hostage so i'm sort of curious what you think about those four different potential reform coalitions uh and you know and and i i guess in particular i'd love you to i'd love to hear your your extended take on the potential for the kind of centrist problem solvers you know fulcrum strategy of approach to finding uh, some sort of bipartisan workable situation, because I think a lot of folks right now are uh, intrigued by that possibility. And I know you have thoughts on that. Yeah. So 
I would say um, with the caveat that uh, as political scientists, we are all out of the prediction business. I feel my sense is that a kind of bipartisan effort, uh, that kind of coalition has the greatest likelihood of success in part because that's what's worked in the past. Um, not in the same way through organizations of the type that you're referring to and that I'm interested in, but the joint committees that were formed that drafted a lot of this legislation and helped to shepherd them through uh, successfully in the 40s and in the 70s, I think um, are reason to think that that's the kind of coalition that manages to get things done. Uh, and I think in part that's because uh, if you have members of both parties telling individuals outside of the group, hey, this is a good policy, this is a good procedural reform for us, for reasons, uh, that sort of avoids the politicization of reform, which I think is really dangerous uh, for uh, any group that is sort of hoping to make something like this happen, and particularly in a polarized time. I think the challenge of using a group like the problem solvers is that unlike moderate organizations that are entirely within one party, it's really hard to enforce the behavior of members across the party aisle when they're in a caucus or conference meeting and you can't be there. Um, groups like the Blue Dogs or New Democrats, obviously, they all get to sit in in a Democratic caucus meeting and they get to monitor the behavior of their colleagues and see, you know, are they selling themselves out? Are they uh, giving in too much? The sort of opportunities to uh, close ranks are more more present than when you're trying to work across the aisle and maintain some kind of cohesion. And so I think um, I would be worried that a group like the uh, Problem Solvers Caucus uh, would be well suited to extract concessions from a single leader, as they did with Pelosi, when Democratic members withheld uh, threatened to withhold their votes from her speakership bid unless she gave in on some uh, rules reforms, but are a lot harder when you're trying to get members on both sides of the aisle who are not in your group to hang together. And so that would be some concern I would have. I think one of the interesting things about the canon revolt uh, that folks don't often appreciate is that even though it was helmed by uh, individuals who would ultimately defect from the Republican Party and form their own group, the Progressive Party, uh, at the time, one of the things that helped to make that group legitimate uh, was the membership of sort of senior Republicans who were also pissed off at Cannon. Uh, and so I think one of the things that really helps a reform effort get off the ground is to have some individuals who have um, some clout within the party and are perceived to have unimpeachable partisan records. That makes it, I think, more compelling for just rank and file members to say this must be okay. Uh, or it's okay to push back against party leaders or the establishment because this far more powerful and established individual is doing so. And I think this is another challenge that the Problem Solvers Caucus has, which is that they don't necessarily have uh, individuals with that standing. Now, in the Senate, a group of central senators, I, th I think, might be able to help them get over that hump. But it'll be interesting to see whether senators without any kind of sort of formal organizational apparatus are able to sustain collaboration or whether this sort of ad hocery leads uh, to little progress. And I realize that that not, not all of our listeners may uh, be uh, fully aware of what the Problem Solvers Caucus is and what it does. So maybe you could just talk a little bit more about the Problem Solvers Caucus. And and you know, also, as you're doing that, I'd love to kind of get your sense of, of, of how unusual 
a caucus like that is historically and, and whether there's any precedent for, for a similar group or, or, or whether there's been a similar group in the past. So the Problem Solvers Caucus is a bipartisan organization in the House. Uh, I think it has about 50 members and they're evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. So no one has an advantage. Um, like other intra-party groups, uh, like the Blue Dogs, the New Democrat Coalition, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the House Freedom Caucus, they have pretty um, strict rules about membership. So you can't just say, hey, I'm a problem solver. You have to be admitted to the organization. They have some vetting procedures. They have uh, rules that govern uh, the admittance of new members, in part because they want this balance between Democrats and Republicans. They also have uh, a sort of formal meeting schedule of the kind that we would think of uh, with uh, these intra-party groups uh, like the uh, House Freedom Caucus. Uh, they meet regularly. They keep meeting minutes. They have confidential chats. Uh, they typically don't talk about what they talk about in meetings to anyone else. And so this kind of organization is pretty common to the House. Uh, and it, it looks, at least in organizational form, pretty similar to groups like the Blue Dogs or the House Freedom Caucus or the New Democrats. But what's really unusual is that very few uh, congressional member organizations that are policy driven and sort of have adopted a lot of the same mechanisms that intra-party groups oper operate under, that this is a bipartisan group. So like the contrast would be there's the like Congressional Corn Growers Caucus. And that's policy oriented, yes, um, presumably care about certain agricultural pr products, but um, they're not necessarily arranged and organized um, to legislate or change a party or several parties direction on a variety of policy issues. So I think that's where the bipartisan um, nature of the Problem Solvers Caucus, which looks if you didn't know it to be like any of these other intra-party groups, uh, but happens to have both Republicans and Democrats. It's uh, unusual in particular in the sense to which it uh, is deliberately evenly divided. Um, Southern Democrats in the mid-century would have the occasional Republican from the South join their group. So it's not totally unprecedented, but this kind of deliberate balancing, I think, is pretty unusual. Yeah, so I actually wanted to take this in a slightly different um, direction and talk about party politics a little bit because, you know, this, um, some of your work has been so insightful, Ruth, on the kind of how parties function in Congress. And I read Building the Block with an eye toward the work that I'm doing on parties that, like, par how parties function primarily in the nomination, the presidential nomination process. And you have a lot in there about you know, how members of Congress kind of understand their own positions relative to others in the in the caucus and who's likely to be pivotal on, on a vote. And that, you know, one of the one of the points of insight that you make is that dissident members don't necessarily know if their vote will be will be pivotal and that shapes their incentive structure. Um and that you also you have clusters um, of of preference points and preferences at the at the party median and, and elsewhere and making it difficult to kind of estimate other people's behavior and preferences and that really made me think about nominations because presidential nominations are essentially lots of people within the party um, not just elites but also voters trying to kind of estimate where others are at and figure out where you know like figure out where the where the electoral analog to the floor median 
um, might be and, you know, who, what candidate other people will, will prefer. And so I wonder if you think about kind of how congressional parties relate to party politics and party processes in contexts other than Congress and how, I mean, I'm really motivated to think about how people who study parties in Congress and people who study parties in, in nominations or in at the state level or in the electorate or whatever other kind of um, context, you know, how we can talk to each other a little bit better. So I think this is incredibly interesting. And I, as uh, I don't have great answers, but I, here's how I've thought about it. And I think it comes uh, from a slightly different perspective than yours, Julia, but I think uh, might have some areas of some overlap for both of us. And so one of the things that I think is really cool about these inter-party groups is that they can be both sort of bellwethers for what is happening within a party in the electorate. Uh, so the progressive party in the, in the sort of uh, 1910s, 1920s is a good example where there's a lot of dissatisfaction on the part of Republican voters in the Midwest who felt like the party was leaving them behind and ignoring in particular their service to the union and fighting the Civil War. Uh, and so the group that formed in Congress was in part, I think, a symptom of that brewing and simmering dissatisfaction that was happening in the electorate. And so one way to think about how to study parties in Congress is if we think they're mirrors of the party in the electorate, when there are uh, manifestations that take institutional form within a congressional party, it's in some sense a signal of the strength and dissatisfaction that exists within the electorate as a whole. And so to bring it to contemporary times, I think we should take seriously the extent to which progressive and liberal Democrats are really dissatisfied with the status quo within the Democratic Party. And that's in part a reflection of the kind of sort of more aggressive tactics on the part of the Congressional Progressive Caucus to uh, elbow its way to the bargaining table and take a seat oh, that has normally been occupied by more moderate Democrats. And I think that is a move that we can often think of as sort of just being inside baseball happening just within Congress. There are, you know, moderate Democrats who are ensuring that uh, Democrats are able to hold on to a slim majority and thus they have power and progressive members are unhappy about that. And I think that's short sighted. I think it's important to recognize that those same fights are happening within the broader party at large. And you would know better than me, but it seems like that's sort of what characterized the nomination process as well, and the fight over whether it would be Biden who would be the presidential nominee or whether it should be a more progressive candidate. Yeah, if I can just follow up briefly, I think this is really helpful. And I think that it it's actually really nice to hear um, a kind of explanation of your theory about how the how the electorate is connected to parties in Congress. And this is often something that I note when I'm teaching work about Congress is that it will be, um, I mean, not to, I don't want to single anyone out specifically, this is, you know, some of the most brilliant works of Congress that I've read, but often don't really have a kind of theory of how the electorate functions. But this is, this takes us, I think, some of the way there by at least thinking about how factions in Congress are reflective of sentiment in the electorate. And, you know, some other, some point in, in the future, I would love to really sit down and think with with Congress scholars about how this how this particular faction emerged between Democrat within the Democratic Party between progressives and more what what people refer to as centrists, which I think is 
maybe ideologically not super descriptive um, to to lump both Biden and, and Nancy Pelosi into the centrist faction, but the status quo faction. And, you know, and I've actually written about this, about this sort of division between the pro status quo elements of a party and the kind of transformative elements. Um, and I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting how that then might play on ideology in Congress. We're thinking about these ideal points is so important, but I think it's also interesting to think about whether that division is is primarily a kind of development of the nomin- the presidential nomination process, a development of coalitional politics in Congress, or as a bottom up um, development from from divisions that actually exist in the electorate. I think that's sort of potentially very um, kind of, uh, why can't I think of words this morning? Uh, the kind of feedback loops of, um, of causal relationships there might be really interesting, multi-directional causation. So yeah. Okay. Thank you. This is really helpful in my thinking about that. And I think that to the extent that intra-party factions are forming, um, or just factions, I mean, these kind of caucuses are forming in general in response to, uh, an environment that, that they want to change. And in the, at least in the modern era, that, you know, that would suggest that they are closer to the electorate or have a different understanding of what the, the electorate or a different slice of the electorate wants. Um, one, that's where they're going to get their strength to actually succeed in changing how Congress works, changing the status quo. And, and then two, I mean, that's just, it, it makes sense that that's what would fuel them at least to have a, a, a different view. I want to, point out, though, that when the Senate Steering Committee first um, began, and it's not the Senate Republican Steering Committee, it's the Senate Steering Committee, Robert Byrd gives a great speech on the Senate floor, um, complaining about the fact that we uh, called ourselves the Senate Steering Committee and not the Republican Steering Committee, but it's technically not a a partisan uh, operation. And when it first started, there were uh, some some Southern Democrats, but, you know, conservative Democrats who would would affiliate and would, would come to the meetings and the lunches and things like that. Um, and it was definitely focused much more uh, towards part uh, towards policy than party per se. But I, I just want to say I find this this entire conversation very refreshing, and I think that this is this line of inquiry is especially important today. I think it, it relates to a lot of the other th- things that we've talked about on this podcast. And it draws our attention to things like social dynamics. It draws our attention to uh, kind of intra-party fissures and dynamics, to complexity, to the role of individuals, to the role of skill. All the things that most people who think about Congress and study Congress today, or I don't want to say most because I think it's changing, but a lot of people we typically have downplayed. And it's basically Congress is the sum total of a bunch of exogenous forces and it's polarized and all of this other stuff. And then you, it's like a calculator and you put all this stuff from the outside and then this is what happens. But it turns out that's not entirely accurate. Um, but on that note, I want to kind of, the question I guess I have here for you, Ruth, is that if we think about intraparty caucuses, and how they work, and where their power comes from. And partly it's from the outside, and the outside is not some homogenous thing either. But their power comes from meeting with one another, and coordinating with one another, and talking to one another. And we typically lose sight of this this kind of adverbial aspect of, of how Congress works. And that's incidentally where the leader's power comes from as well. Um, and 
in a freewheeling environment, you can imagine that, say, the Senate in the 1960s and 70s, the House um, back then, or although I would say the House when the Freedom Caucus forms is a lot more freewheeling than the Senate. But there's it puts a premium on that kind of organization. It puts a premium on that kind of power. But in a centralized environment, it may still be important, but you're all of a sudden competing with the centralized entity or the centralized meeting space. And I'm thinking about the Senate. I mean, you would, we, the Republicans have lunch together three times a week and that's where all of the important stuff happens. And it's harder to prevail in those meetings. It seems to me, because you then are trying to persuade other Republicans of your views and what should be done. Um, and the leadership or the centralized uh, you know, op- opposition is basically saying, yeah, but no, that's going to help the Democrats. And I guess my question is, when we think about party, uh, intra-party caucus formation, and we think about the activities in which they engage, which is another thing I want to get to in a little bit, if we have time, does the majority and minority status matter? Number one. And then number two, in terms of influencing when they form or how they form and the activities in which they engage. And then number two, does the the time or the overall organization of Congress matter in terms of the success of these factions as well? So let me try and unpack. There's a lot there. One could uh, write an entire book about um, like the differences between minority and majority party status. I think I think that it's incredibly interesting, and we don't we probably don't yet know in part because we need more variation in the kinds of organizations. Um, you know, when we look to say the Democratic Study Group, Democrats were in the majority for so long, it's really hard to know how to think about that organization in its heyday. Uh, And then the Republican Study Committee has its own sort of inferential problems, um, sort of as classic examples of the kinds of things you're talking about. I just want to first say, I totally agree that one of the things that we often miss about legislative politics is that like legislation is hard. Figuring out like details of what is going to go in a bill is really difficult. Figuring out what you're going to agree to give in on and stand fast on are just really complicated and our models often don't account for that. It matters that you sit in the same room and you hash out these details. And that's what I agree. I think a lot of these organizations are doing, they're getting the committee room where you sit and you have pizza or you're in the basement of Tortilla Coast or whatever. And you're you're talking about the nitty gritty of policymaking. And that's what's gonna give you far more success than the legislators who are spending a lot of their time raising money or doing only constituent service. I think the majority party, minority party status matters uh, a lot, but it's a little hard to know whether, um, and I think this goes to sort of thinking about these groups as institutions. I think it matters when a group is formed uh, in political time, if you will. And so the kind of strategy that an organization may adopt when it's in the minority may make it have a harder time adapting once it gets into the majority or vice versa. Uh, so here, the Freedom Caucus is, I think, a really great example of this kind of dynamic. Uh, formed when Republicans were in the majority, the idea was you control a pivotal number of votes so that Republicans can't control a floor or a procedural majority without you. This gives you a lot of leverage. Matt Green, as you guys know, has written a lot about sort of these hardball tactics. And that works really well when the possibility of having a floor majority uh, is, you know, possible. But when you're in the minority, that 
kind of no holds bar strategy doesn't really work. Uh, and so then and think- just in, sorry to interrupt, but I'll, and to kind of loop in kind of the presidency, which Julia pays a lot more attention to than I do. Another thing that I noticed on that note was that it also matters who sits in the White House, because you saw the Freedom Caucus try after Trump won to come out and and engage in the same type of behavior and the same kind of strategies that they engaged in with Obama in the White House when they're in the majority. And it turns out um, that they're not as successful. And and the health care bill, I think, is a great example of that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I I think to give credit to the Trump administration, they were smart, uh, particularly after the health care debacle, to start to cultivate even closer ties. And it's not, uh, it's interesting that uh, the Trump administration has had former Freedom Caucus members as part of the administration. Uh, And I think those individuals uh, presumably are there to cultivate uh, a sort of more sympathetic relationship with a potential thorn uh, in the party when it was still possible for Trump to be pursuing a legislative agenda. So I think all of these factors really matter. And so it's just really hard to know, you know, whether a group is going to be more powerful in the majority or the minority. I think it depends a lot, again, on these sort of strategic calculations. Uh, But again, I just want to echo, I think that at the end of the day, you're right, that sort of the challenge for organizations today is figuring out how to come into those already centralized situations with um, their arms linked. Uh, with a game plan, but party leaders have been really good at sort of monopolizing members' time and keeping the locus of policymaking details under their control. Um, and that's the kind of centralization that's been really problematic, even though it's not, you know, particularly sexy. It's that's the sort of power that matters. So we'll move on to the final round of questions here, um, and I, I want to ask, uh, you know, about not not just the prospects for congressional reform here, but the potential substance for uh, congressional reform. Uh, you know, we've talked about previous joint committees. Uh, you know, there was the House Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, this previous Congress that may or may not get reauthorized. You know, it, if, you know, there were a joint committee, uh, that doesn't, again, doesn't seem likely, but at some point there may be, I mean, what, what would you advise the committee to make their their focus? I mean, how how would you encourage them to think about reforming Congress internally? So I may be beating a dead horse, and I know Lee, this is something you've thought about quite a bit, but I just keep coming back to thinking that you know the the day in and day out toil that makes Congress function; those people are the staff. And so to the extent that Congress can spend more resources on ensuring that there are qualified, knowledgeable, and experienced staffers working in members' offices and working for committees, we will get better policy, uh, at least for members, uh, senators to think about and consider. And then at the end of the day, it's up to them whether they accept it. But, you know, sort of we need the inputs to Congress to be the best we can have. And there it's just about investing in the personnel who make that happen and who keep Congress running on time. Uh, and I think that legislative staffers don't get anywhere near enough credit. And this is not just a, a sop to James, but I think it's true. Uh, you know, do Thank incredible you. service Thank you. Uh, and we should uh, compensate them accordingly. And we should make that as prestigious a job as it is for 
you know, how Congress functions. Um, and so that's sort of where my heart lies. I know there are a lot of other uh, possibilities on the table, folks who care more about transparency than I do, uh, folks who care more about updating the sort of technological aspects of Congress, which I admit to be incredibly important, but not an area of expertise for myself. But, you know, when you spend a lot of time in the archives, you see lots of letters, lots of memos from incredibly careful staffers, some of who go on to become political scientists. Uh, and so I think it just that's those are the people who get things done. And so those are the people we should be investing in. Well, amen to that. And uh, for listeners, Ruth and I served together on an American Political Science Association committee that uh, was tasked with making recommendations to the the uh, House Select Committee on Modernization. And we served together on the subcommittee uh, on on capacity and staffing. And and so we've we've, we've jointly made these recommendations. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So I'm at the I'm at the point where I feel like I'm I'm throwing out sort of ideas I've had about parties um, that may or may not be uh, formulated into um, into questions. But one thing I've I've been actually thinking about a lot since since reading your book, but over you know since the 2018 elections when there was this kind of you know when when there was this entry of these more progressive Democrats from various districts who won their when they're primaries, right? So the the squad of sort of the public face of this. One thing I've been kind of thinking about is the relationship between the Congress that we talk about that's about what goes on on the floor, that's about procedural reforms, um, that's, you know, that that Congress, um, and then the kind of public-facing Congress. And it seems to me, I mean, one thing that seems sort of seems to me is that those are increasingly different things. And I wonder, I was thinking about this also with the kind of relationship between the president and the Freedom Caucus, you know, so I wonder how much factions in Congress contribute to kind of changing inner branch relations, but also how much they contribute to this kind of changing public face of Congress, or if there's something to be explored in the disconnect between like if you look at how if you look at how the progressive faction of of the democratic house is portrayed in in the media and particularly is portrayed by political opponents it's very much about alexandria ocasio cortez and ilhan omar and that group of people and if you look at the progressive caucus within congress you get a very different set of, of actors like ro Khanna and and people um, like that, who are the sort of floor people. And I don't mean to take away from any le legislative action that people in the, in the so-called squad are undertaking, but it just, it's very stark. It's a very stark difference. So I wonder if that, like the changing relationship between the public face of congressional factions and what actually goes on on the floor, if that's, you know, if that's something that's dynamic and what impact that might have on the, on the political system as a whole. Well, it's certainly the case, right, that it's hard to imagine Richard Russell, uh, if there was Twitter at the time, being quite as compelling a figure as AOC. And so I do think there's something about the new social media environment, which changes the need to, uh, for these factions or gives the opportunity for factions to sort of, as you say, have two different faces or two different instantiations. I think one of the things that blows my mind and shout out to AOC if anyone in, on her staff is listening is I think one of the things that's so interesting is that she's one of the few who 
recognize that the Congressional Progressive Caucus is not organized in a effect, particularly effective way to do the kind of work that the public facing liberal progressive faction within the Democratic Party want um, in order to sort of get what they want done. And she's been a proponent of tightening the kind of organizational strictures within the caucus, uh, within the CPC, to uh, make it harder for people to sort of claim progressive bona fides without actually putting their money where their mouth is when it comes to legislating. And so while we typically think of AOC as kind of being, let's just say, inexperienced as a legislator, you know, being a freshman or now second term uh, congresswoman, there's still a lot to learn. But I think she's been remarkably perceptive to recognize that organizations matter and they change the message. And so if you are able to change how one of these groups is organized, you're not only able to change what it can get done on the floor, but you can change how it interacts with voters and members of the public, uh, whether that be interest groups or uh, other kinds of activists. So I think that is like a really interesting move uh, and one that will be worth studying uh, in the future uh, as we sort of move. I guess what I would say is it would seem like uh, the social media environment only increases the incentive for doing this kind of thing. And so our opportunities to study it will only increase. I love the AOC reference simply because I think it illustrates so well the problem with dysfunction and the problem in Congress today and the role that I think these intraparty uh, caucuses and blocks can play to help uh, to help solve that dysfunction. And it, and it flies in the face of everything that we typically think about when it comes to how to make Congress better, at least in the mainstream of congressional thought. I don't know if we have any art fans here, but James McNeil Whistler is one of my favorite, but he responds to this idea that art for art's sake, that's like his thing, right? And he's, I just bear with me for a second. He says, art should be independent of all claptrap. It should stand alone and appeal to the artistic sense of eye or ear without confounding this with emotions entirely foreign to it as devotion, pity, love, patriotism, and the like. Well, it seems to me that when we talk about congressional reform, when we talk about procedures, we typically think of it in terms of procedure for procedure's sake. And while I agree with Whistler in terms of art for art's sake, I'm not sure that procedure for procedure's sake makes a lot of sense. It makes sense in my mind, and I typically am probably one of the few people um, in, in the country who vote on uh, procedural grounds and base my decisions on who I want to support on how they behave and use the procedures at their disposal. But ultimately, what members care about is winning. And you they act, right? You have to act to achieve your goals. And this is what I find so remarkable about AOC, where she comes into this environment and in many respects, you're like, well, there's no political experience. There's no, you know, she's got no history, no organization, no nothing. And so therefore she must, you know, she's got a lot to learn. And, but in reality, she understands it quite well. She understands that to win, she has to act. If you want to do something, you have to try doing it. And I think the response on the Green New Deal, for instance, and the pushback that she got early on, on uh, to try to not push that was don't, don't act. Because if you act, where those other people are going to win. So just don't act and then we'll win, which is essentially saying, if you want to do that, don't do it. And when we think about action, blocks form, it seems to me, at least the successful ones, the big ones, the ones we talk about, they form because they help their members to act, 
to use the rules as leverage or to create new rules that they can use as leverage to then do things, to do things. So it's not rules for the rules sake. It's, it's actually like they want to do things, even if it's just getting reelected, but presumably they want to do something that requires action. And if we look at Congress today, I think the problem again is that there, there's not a lot of action. And so if we think about the Problem Solvers Caucus, I guess the question for you is a lot of people, especially in the um, in, in the scholarly community, I think Matt Green's book does an excellent job getting um, kind of pushing back at this a little bit, typically think of the Freedom Caucus as a destabilizing force. Well, in, admittedly, environments change, but the Freedom Caucus was a lot more successful in the members in the Freedom Caucus, I think, in, in trying to at least achieve their goals or... It, or at least get something out of what they of what was happening in Congress at the time than the, the the problem solvers caucus has been. So I guess my question for you is: Would the problem solvers caucus be more successful, or other reform minded caucuses be more successful if they borrowed a page from the playbooks of AOC and the Freedom Caucus and actually? tried to adopt a more hard-nosed uh, approach to to Congress. And, and also, I mean, you can go back to the steering committee, the RSC in its early days. You can go back to the revolt against Cannon as well. I mean, all of these, they all have the same kind of um, determination to, to band together, to use the rules, to try to do things um, in common. And would, would our reform caucuses be more successful if they adopted that approach? So I'm all for sharp elbows. I agree. I think we we don't give the House Freedom Caucus enough credit for the kind of organizational innovations that they made. And while their tactics may wrinkle, uh, they get results or they uh, they did. Uh, and so that's more than many lawmakers can say. Uh, I think that the challenge for bipartisan groups is that when you're throwing an elbow or you know, you're uh, sort of taking on these hardball tactics, they're going to be applied not only, you know, they're not, they're going to be applied to your own guys, but also across the aisle. And so there's some challenges in sort of figuring out how to make that work politically. Um, I think what the Freedom Caucus has been good at is being very clear that their priority is to get what they want but that Democrats are clearly worse than Republicans. And I think the challenges for a bipartisan group is just those, those messages are just more complicated. You know, if you're pushing back against Democratic leaders, for example, in a House majority uh, like we have today, you know, how do you keep Republican members of the bipartisan group from not sharpening their elbows too much, uh, right? So that Democratic members get, get in trouble with leadership uh, when they're in their own party caucus? Uh, how do you keep people focused on the policies that they wanna collectively achieve uh, when they're getting whispers in their ear from colleagues that are saying, you're doing this, you're undermining the party brand, this is really bad, we're gonna lose our majority or you're threatening our chances of securing a majority. And I think sort of if we take some of Francis Lee's work seriously that there's so much potential for things to radically change. People are just incredibly risk averse, which is what makes someone like AOC so unusual because she wants to act um, and sort of make gambles and do big things. And we just are not used to seeing that in our current sort of very careful politics, because as things have gotten more complicated, people have gotten more scared. And, you know, I'm all for 
a little bit less scaredy cat in this, if that's you know a term one can use at this hour of the morning. A little bit less scaredy cat. I love it. Um, so uh, uh, I want to make I want to make t-shirts that say that. Um, so uh, final thoughts. Um, you know, I I think I mean that having this kind of broad view of the, the history of factions, the history of reforms, really helps us to, to think about the ways in which what feels like a, you know, a particular moment of stuckness, you know, is probably not gonna stay stuck for, forever because under the, the surface, there's uh, quite a lot of tension, quite a, a lot of disagreement, and you know, that the, the history of reform is you know, always about those moments in which some equilibrium that worked for a while becomes increasingly unstable because Congress is constantly changing and the desires and, and pressures of members are constantly changing and, and nothing lasts forever. So you know, as stuck as things feel now, I still remain hopeful that you know things will change again. Hopefully, they'll change for the better. I, I would just say I think one of the things that you know the pan if there's any silver lining to the pandemic, which I refuse to believe there could be, given how many people have uh, suffered, lost jobs, and died, um, is maybe this is an opportunity for lawmakers to really put aside their differences and recognize that there are a lot of $20 bills on the ground that they can pick up, easy things to do that would make everybody happy and that would solve a lot of problems. And if they could just do some of that, we would all be a lot happier. Julia and James and then Ruth, final thoughts? I mean, I just have one brief final thought, which is that we actually haven't talked about, I mean, we're recording this on December 11th, 2020, and we haven't really talked about the kind of potential factionalism within the Republican Party around the reaction to the election of 2020. So I'm, I guess my final thought is sort of about, you know, this has been in some ways a very, a conversation very much rooted in normal politics or, you know, the politics since 2008 um, with some historical background. And I wonder to the degree we're about to see some much more, more severe um, factions with, you know, 106 Republican members of the House signing on to support a, a Supreme Court brief asking essentially to overturn the, the results of the election. So I'm, I'm just kind of thinking about that, that bridge. That's my final thought. It's grim. Well, I'm, I'm going to end on an optimistic note. I always try to end on an optimistic note, at least uh, usually. But I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it draws our attention again, like I said, to things that we don't typically think about, and at least in the, the scholarly community surrounding Congress. Um, it, it draws our attention to things that actually matter, that, that produce outcomes and that have consequences that are certainly influenced by the outside, but also happen on the inside of Congress. And it, it, I really just think optimistically, it seems to me that our kind of equilibrium understanding of how Congress operates really is not accurate. And this idea of disequilibrium, this idea of churn, this idea of uncertainty, this idea of um, you know chaos or whatever you want to call it, actually, that's what 
that's the secret sauce. And that's what, you know, in the past, when big things happen, it happens in those moments. And that, and it turns out, if you look at the different blocks, those moments are always with us and they're always there. And people are always fighting um, just kind of like around the corner or behind closed doors about what, um, what the party should be doing, what the Congress should be doing. And those fights haven't been as productive, uh, presumably over the past couple of decades or the past couple of years. But there's no reason why they're not, to Lee's point, um, going to be productive again, I think, in, in the future. And yes, some of those factions may be doing things that, that people don't like. But, you know, the answer to that is to get other factions and to push back and to try to do things that you do like. And as more people do things, you get more information out there. More people can say, wow, I like those people. I don't like those those people. What are those people thinking? And then ultimately, you get progress, right? You get self-government. And I think that ultimately is the key here. It's not a factory. It's an activity in which we all participate. And I really uh, appreciate Ruth uh, for coming on today and, and helping us to better understand from the congressional side how that actually all works. Final thoughts, Ruth? Then we'll close. I uh, know. I just wanted to thank you. Thank you so much for having me, you all. I've learned so much from all of your work, and uh, I'm excited to see what happens. I'm hopeful that Julia is wrong and James is right, but I suppose only time will tell. All right. Well, thank you, Ruth. And that was another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.